This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. You. How would you do? Could you chop, say, six to seven cords of wood while at the same time farming a couple dozen acres uh, over the course of six months or so in order to survive the winter? There's a few people in here who know the farming thing. They got the farming thing down. By the way, that means you're going to get a knock on your door uh, when the zombie apocalypse starts. You know, what the problem is, is that those of you who do know how to farm, there's like three trees on your whole property. So we might freeze to death. But anyway, how'd you think you'd do? How do you think you'd do? Well, even if you're one of those people in this room who doesn't know that carrots grow on trees, the truth is you're still a farmer, just a different kind. You see, this morning we're going to talk about spiritual farming because the Bible's very clear. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a farmer. You are a spiritual farmer. So in, in only the, the masterful way that John can... As Gary said this morning, we're going to see three principles or three aspects to this job description of spiritual farming. Three very practical principles of spiritual farming. But before we get there, I want you to see how incredibly John sets the scene for us in the first few verses. Look at John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He writes... Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, in order to understand what John is doing so far, there's a couple of things we need to remember. First, remember that even though we looked at it several weeks ago, As far as John's concerned, we just heard the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Meaning, there's a few details about that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that we need to remember. For example, remember Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a leading teacher of Israel. He he even belonged to the the governing body called the Sanhedrin that that ruled over Israel. In other words, Nick was a very well-respected well-educated man. But also, when it comes to the Gospel of John, it's very important to remember that Nicodemus met with Jesus at night. He said, what do you mean? Uh, Excuse me, and the reason that's important to remember is because even though he was a well-educated, well-respected man, in John's Gospel, people who, who talk to Jesus at night don't get it. Nicodemus said, what do you mean I have to be born again? That's not possible. But on the other hand, verse 6 in our passage today says it was about the sixth hour. 
That's noon. It's in the middle of the day. So right off the bat, John is setting up this incredible contrast between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. Because not only was she a woman, and men didn't talk to women they didn't know back then, but she was a Samaritan woman, which was worse than a Gentile as far as as a Jew was concerned. So socially and theologically, you could not get much further away from Nicodemus than this woman. And lastly, when when compared to to Nicodemus, this this conversation isn't taking place in the heart of the holiest city in human history. No, this conversation is taking place in the the barren desert of central Samaria. So immediately, John wants us to start wondering what's going on here. What's going to be different about this interaction between Jesus and this woman compared to, to Nicodemus? Which, which leads us to the second thing that's important to remember, which is, if you're a Jew reading John's gospel, and you hear about a man meeting a woman at a well, your mind starts to spin. Because in the Bible, important things happen at wells. In the Bible, especially relationships happen at wells. Moses met his wife Zipporah at the well. Abraham's servant met his son Isaac's wife at a well. Remember that? Jacob met his future wife Rachel at a well. And each time the Bible goes out of its way to say that it was love at first sight. There are always these amazing encounters. Israel's history is full of special relationships that began at wells. So, so listen, all of that to say that verse 7 is absolutely pregnant with anticipation because this woman has no idea what you and I know about this seemingly tired, thirsty man who is waiting for her at this well. Does she have any chance of understanding who he is if someone like Nicodemus didn't get it? Or is another incredible relationship about to begin. Brothers and sisters, this is spiritual farming. Look at the first scene of our story in, beginning in verse 7. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning, but look at, look at verse 7 where the first principle we see through Jesus' example is this. Spiritual farming is about a relationship, not a religion. Spiritual farming is about a relationship, not a religion. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, because you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Now, back in verse 7, go all the way back up to the beginning part of that section. The way that Jesus opens up this conversation might come off to us as kind of rude. Like immediately our culture is screaming, you know, patriarchy and misogynism and all of that sort of stuff. Toxic masculinity is ordering this woman to give him a drink of water. But if we read just a little bit further, verse 9 tells us that's not how the woman saw it. She, just, she was just surprised that he would even talk to her. Like I said earlier, besides the cultural custom that men didn't, don't speak to women that they don't know, not immediate family, Jews hated Samaritans and had hated them for going on about a millennium by this point. It's to the point where by Jesus' time, Jews would go out of their way to not come into contact with any Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. In other words, if Jesus was being patriarchal or misogynistic, he would have said nothing. He would have ignored her. In fact, he might have acted offended by her presence or even ridiculed her. But Jesus is showing us that spiritual farming is about a relationship, not a religion. So in complete opposite to what he was supposed to do, Jesus shows this woman great respect by opening up a conversation with her. However, verse 11 and 12 tells us that what Jesus said in verse 10 did get kind of a rise out of her. In verse 10, Jesus basically said, don't you know who I am? Like Jerusalem's all, all up in a, a tizzy over me. So she says in verse 12, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? Like you're pushing it, dude. Now she's showing some backbone. In fact, it kind of might seem like this conversation might be over. But spiritual farming is about a relationship, not a religion. So look again at what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, Everyone who drinks of this water will not be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. The, the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to life. Now, like Nicodemus, at first her response to this, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty again. At first her response might sound like this woman is, 
is, is kind of confused at, at what Jesus is saying. But what I want you to notice in verse 15 is that tucked into her response is a little hint that she knows he's not talking about regular water because she asks him for some, having already said he doesn't have a bucket. So, so she knows this water is coming from somewhere else. She's still a little guarded. But, but Jesus has ignited this spark of curiosity in this woman that maybe he has something she hasn't been able to find her entire life. Something beyond this well and this desert and this, this getting water at noon so I don't have to interact with the other women thing. Does this guy have what I've been looking for my whole life? Is something incredible happening at a well again? This is spiritual farming. Look at verse 16 through 19 again. Because after this brief sort of metaphorical dance with this woman, Jesus just throws all the cards out onto the table. He tells her to go get her husband. She admits she's actually had five, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And just to be clear, we don't know exactly why she's had five husbands. We want to read into that and say that, that she is, is impure for some reason, but they could have died, they could have abandoned her, or it might all be her fault. We don't actually know. The point is, no matter why she's been married so many times, Jesus cuts right to the quick, right to the dark inner parts of this woman and tells her to go get her loss. Go get your failure. Go get your shame and bring it to me and I will quench that thirst. Just like it says in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God, that sharp double-edged sword is surgically exposing the yawning chasm of this woman's brokenness. For whatever reason, this woman has had a difficult time with the relationships, but this Jesus is offering her something no one else has. He's offering her a true relationship, not more religion. And in contrast to Nicodemus's educated blindness at night, at noon, by a well in the desert, the eyes of this completely unworthy woman are being opened to the light. But Jesus, he hit a little too close to home, so she deflects again in verse 20. It says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say on that mountain. She changed the subject like, okay, so which mountain are we going to worship on? To which Jesus replied in verse 21, says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when either on this mountain or that mountain you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know. The hour is coming when true worshipers, spirit and truth, and he goes on and on and on. Now, I love how real Scripture is. Jesus gives this long explanation about worship and spirit and truth, and the woman at this point is like, preacher, your sermon's been too long. Like, like, like yeah, you lost me there. Um, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all of that, uh, whatever it is you're saying. I can't help but wonder if, if a slight flicker of disappointment might have flashed across this woman's face. Like, man, I was really hoping you had something for me. 
But then you just started talking about theology stuff and never mind. But in verse 26, this weary, thirsty, extraordinary divine man reveals he had actually perfectly led this woman through this conversation to this place so that he could say, I who speak to you am he. Imagine the emotional roller coaster this woman has been on. She's gone from confusion to anger to disappointment to hope, all leading up to this moment when her Savior could tell her it's about a relationship, not a religion. It's about devotions, not a denomination. It's about communion, not a list of commands. Look, go back through this whole conversation and think about how Jesus never once condemned this woman for her answers or her ignorance. When she said, what, you think you're better than our father Jacob? Jesus didn't say, yeah. I'm the dude he saw standing at the top of the ladder in heaven when he had that dream over there. He didn't say that. When she said, you're right, I've had five husbands and the one I'm living with is not my husband, Jesus didn't say, well, lady, you think there might be a common denominator in all your failed relationships. He didn't say that. Because what Jesus wanted with her was a relationship. He wants this woman to realize that he already knows her life is a mess. He already knows that she can't shed her sin any more than she could shed her skin. Which is why when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, he means I'm the one who can fill that hole you have in your heart. He means I'm the one who can take away the shame that brings you to the well at noon. I'm that person. I'm the person who can satisfy everything you've been looking for in this life but have not found. Because eventually this tired, thirsty man wants this woman to understand, listen, that for the joy of having a relationship with her set before him, he's going to endure the cross to pay the price for her shame. That's where this conversation is headed in the future. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to wonder anymore. Another incredible relationship has in fact begun at a well. And friend, are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Christ is calling, find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Whoever you are, He wants a relationship with you. Because He already knows more about your sin than you do. And what's the answer? It's way worse than you think. And He still wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know that He alone has what you haven't been able to find in success and sex and wealth and drugs. He has hope and forgiveness and fulfillment and peace. Brothers and sisters, this is spiritual farming. It's about a relationship, not a religion. It's about a relationship with the one who knows you better than you know yourself because he's your creator and your savior and your God. Which leads us to the second scene where the disciples show up 
And we see that not only is spiritual farming about a relationship and not a religion, but spiritual farming is about priority, not passivity. It's about priorities, not passivity. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said basically what they were thinking. What do you, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has he brought something with him? 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are four, yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and, the, and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So, back in verse 27, I have no doubt that Jesus sent the disciples away to get food so he could have this conversation with this woman before they had a chance to object. Because look at the contrast John sets up now between the woman and the disciples. The woman was so excited about her conversation with Jesus that she left her water jug, which is a very important thing back then, she left it by the well, ran into town, and indulged in a little understandably exaggerated report on what happened. Jesus, Jesus certainly didn't have time to tell her everything she had ever done in her life, but that's how she felt. She didn't care that, that virtually every social protocol had been broken. She found someone who knew her, listen, and still loved her. On the other hand, the disciples' greatest concern was, Jesus, uh, you shouldn't be doing that. But what Jesus is displaying through this conversation is, just as an example, contrary to the opinion of many, God cherishes women. Like, like people who think that women are less, are, are inferior, that women should be quiet, that, that, that women should be subjects, they disagree with the Creator of heaven and earth. I mean, Jesus calls us His bride for God's sake. In God's eyes, women are valuable. They're supposed to be cherished. But unfortunately, these disciples hadn't figured that out yet. Which brings us to verse 31, where Jesus starts talking about what He has to eat. So the, so the disciples in verse 31, I think, basically say, Jesus, you sent us to get some food. Aren't you going to eat it? To which Jesus is like, don't worry. Someday you'll figure out I do these things on purpose. And he says in verse 32, I have food that you do not know about. Now, Jesus isn't suggesting that truly spiritual people don't eat. No. In fact, Jesus often asked for food, right? So, so what he's doing is using this opportunity to teach his disciples, and you and I for that matter, about priorities. You see, the I and the you in verse 32 are emphatic. 
Meaning Jesus is saying, I have something you don't have to eat. In other words, he's saying, guys, there's more to this life than physical sustenance. He's saying in verse 34, while food might rejuvenate the body, doing the will of the Lord, spiritual farming, that rejuvenates the soul. Planting gospel seeds, nourishing young shoots, offering living water to the spiritually thirsty is nourishing to the soul. And the more outcast and the more lost and the more unworthy they are, the richer the meal. Listen, brothers and sisters, if what Jesus is saying is true, that, that spiritual farming nourishes the soul, then listen, here's the truth. If spiritual farming nourishes the soul, then the church today is filled with emaciated Christians. If, if, if spiritual farming nourishes the soul... The truth is that the church today is feared with, filled with spiritually emaciated Christians. Christians whose bellies are swollen by the spiritual malnourishment of kingdom work. Because like going through a drive through they're waiting passively for spiritual food to be dropped in their lap. Which is why Jesus says in verse 35, Do not say there are yet four months, then come the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, spiritual farming is about priority, not passivity. And, and what I think is so cool about how Jesus says this and how John lays it out is this. Like they have for millennia, in, in these hot parts of the world, people today, they still wear white robes. It's very common, men and women. So, so when Jesus says, look, the harvest is white, while, while, while Jesus is describing the priority and the urgency of the harvest in terms of, of having a, a white hue when it's ready, I can't help but wonder if he was pointing at the harvest of white robes making their way toward him from the village. As they looked out across the fields and this woman is coming back with all these people and Jesus says, look, the harvest is white. Either way, what Jesus is saying is that spiritual farming is a priority, not passivity. Because I don't know about you, but, but because of something in between fear and maybe laziness or, or, or busyness, I'm prone to wait for that perfectly ripe grain to walk up and say, I want to be a Christian. Please tell me about Jesus. You? Well, Jesus is urging us along with his disciples to, to follow his example of spiritual farming, to recognize this, listen, that the anger and the conflict and the separation in our culture, it's not a signal to quit and hide. It's a sign that the harvest is white with hurt and anger and failure and a desperate want for someone to rescue them from their sin. The urgency and the priority of, of telling people about the one who wants a relationship with them, not a religion. Because spiritual farming is about priority, not 
passivity. That's the example Jesus gives us. Now, maybe you're thinking this. I hear what you're saying, Pastor Grant, about a relationship and about priorities, but I hate to break it to you. I ain't Jesus. And so I can't go and have this short conversation with someone and tell them everything they've ever done and, and wow them and then they believe. I, I, sorry, can't do that. Well, I want you to look at verse 39, the last scene of our passage where we see that not only is spiritual farming about relationships and priorities, but listen, spiritual farming is about availability, not capability. It's about availability, not capability. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, I want to draw your attention back to the intricate, very educated, frankly, profound theological dissertation this Samaritan woman gave in verse 39 that convinced all these villagers to come see Jesus. All right? Oh, wait. It was actually kind of simple, wasn't it? In fact, it wasn't, if we're honest with ourselves, it wasn't even really accurate. She, she said, he told me all I ever did. They said, we want to go see him. Yet, even though that was her testimony, God-inspired scripture says, listen, many believed because of her. Quick question, how worried are you that you won't say the right thing if you go tell someone about Jesus? Or you won't know what to say? And then ask yourself, do I know more than this Samaritan woman? She did it. She was successful. Stop waiting. Stop thinking. It's about availability, not capability. Because look again at what they said in verse 42. Because here is one of the most important lessons you can learn as a Christian. They said in verse 42, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In other words, brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus doesn't need you to be Him. He doesn't need you to be Him. He just needs you to be available to point people toward Him. He doesn't need you to be Him. He just needs you to be available to point people toward Him. To point people toward the one who has a relationship with you, who wants a, a relationship with them, and He'll handle the rest. In fact, you want to know the truth. When we look at this story of, of Jesus and this woman in Samaria and all these amazing things He told her about and how un, uh, unbelievable it might be that we could do the same thing, the truth is this, in this particular case, listen, Jesus didn't actually do anything you or I couldn't. No, he was just able to do it a lot faster than you or I. Meaning, sure, 
because of his divine knowledge, Jesus was able to make statements. But you and I could get to the same place. We just have to take the time to ask some lovingly nosy questions. It might take us a little longer, but we could get to the same place that Jesus was with this woman. If we're willing to spend some time with someone, we could get to know these things about people like this woman, like Jesus did, and even lead them to the same conclusion. Because spiritual farming is not about capability, it's about availability. Meaning when it comes to spiritual farming, look what John does. By the end of chapter 4, he's saying we should want to be like this Samaritan woman instead of Nicodemus. That's crazy. Because look, all this woman did was exactly what Jesus said would happen if she allowed him to give her this living water. Look back at verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus told her, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Meaning the only thing that happened to this woman was the water of life had welled up in her and was spilling over the top. That's it. The water of life had become a spring that that simply poured out of her mouth because her body couldn't contain it any longer. That's spiritual farming. It's, it's, It's the water of life welling up inside of us until it spills out of our mouths onto anyone who will listen. And listen, it's often unexpected. It's best unrehearsed. And it's rarely perfect. It's often unexpected, it's best unrehearsed, and it's rarely perfect. It's simply the gospel flowing through us instead of just into us. Spiritual farming, it's about a relationship, not a religion. It's about a priority, not passivity. And it's about availability, not capability. Availability to tell anyone who will listen about the one who sacrificed himself in order to ransom you and I from our sin. The one who hung on the cross until he died in order to free us from our bondage. That's the relationship. For freedom's sake, he has set his friends free. And the one who then walked out of the grave three days later because he wanted us to be with him for eternity. In love and in peace and in grace and in mercy. That's the torch that we bear that fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition, to thee we yield our powers. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. Stand with me, please, and let's make that our song.